The Bible is a big book. Depending on your English translation, there are about 783,187 words in that book. It is a long book. And it's kind of confusing sometimes, too. There are lots of long names and lists of names. There are esoteric ancient Mesopotamian geopolitical scenarios. There's strange poetry in some places. There are miracles and angels and, and demons, and there's a magically multiplying buffet line, which is probably every Methodist dream. But there's also a scene where a ghost comes back and talks to King Saul, and there's even a supernaturally charged bear attack. There's some strange stuff in the Bible that we always don't get it, give it credit for. But however, with all that in mind, I think it's often surprising to people when they hear that the Bible is intricately written to tell one cohesive story about one thing. It's really hard to reduce the entire Bible, and sometimes I'll ask people to give me a one-sentence summary, and it's deceptively hard. So I'd love to hear from you if you could just type in the chat, how would you summarize the Bible in one sentence? Type into the chat, see what other people are picking up, and you can't use John 3.16. That's just cheating. It has to be in your own words. So if you're not sure about a whole sentence, just type in maybe a theme or two. Some of the bigger topics that you are thinking are, are central to the Bible. Just go ahead and put that in the chat real quick. As of this morning, here's my, my summary of, of how I would capture the whole Bible in one theme. I would say that God is the creator and the ruler of the entire universe and wants to be in a co-creating relationship with us for the good of all life. I think that one could use some work, but that's where I'm at this morning. So I want to ask you to, to look back to Genesis and just think on the book of Genesis for a little bit. We go back to Genesis fairly often here, and that's because it's really hard to know where the story is going and what the whole story is all about if we don't really know the beginning. So remember how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God planted this garden in the east, in Eden, and he puts humanity in this stewardship role over the garden to work and to keep it. Before the fall, there was still work to do, to work and to keep the garden. And there was a purpose for humanity. There was, there was this plan. God's plan was to partner with humanity in developing God's creation. There's an author and theologian, uh, G.K. Beale, and he writes about how God's plan for humanity, and he puts humanity in the garden, and his plan is to partner with them to, to pull out this abundance and this very goodness that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 throughout all of God's creation. It's a beautiful, very good creation. And there's a really helpful word for what God is doing in Genesis 1 and 2 and what humans are supposed to do with God. The word is creativity. Now, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, if you, if you look up creativity, uh, that would define it as the ability to create, which is pretty straightforward. But we often narrow the word creativity to connotations of musical or artistic productions, but it's far more encompassing and I think far more interesting than that. God used divine creativity to generate a beautiful creation, and he's invited humanity to participate in this divine creativity. Look at Genesis 1, verse 28. The first thing God says to humanity in the Bible is recorded here. First thing he does, God blessed them. First thing God does, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature. That's a pretty high view of humanity. We're like the top dogs of creation, says God. And we get to rule over everything in the whole earth, which is a lot of authority. It's also a lot of creative potential God has given to us. So God's plan here is set off without, this, without a hitch, and, and humanity gets to work alongside God 
co-laboring with God to develop this beautiful world. And so humanity gets to work. One of the first things Adam does is he names every single animal one by one. This is an act of creativity. It's also a symbol of this authority that they have over creation. And there was also community forming. Adam and Eve get together and there's this work of stewardship happening to creation because it's not good for any person to be alone. Then there's this weird section in Genesis 2 where it starts talking about the rivers that go through and how there are certain resources like gold and delum and onyx and all of these natural raw resources. And I often wonder why that's important. But wherever there are raw resources, there's an invitation for creativity and to make something beautiful and new and useful. These resources mentioned also happen to be beautiful things that would later adorn the temple of the Lord. And so God's plan is working perfectly in Genesis 1 and 2. Humans are set to work. They are working with God and they're creating and developing creation and beautiful things. And it's great. They have this close working, loving relationship and they take long walks in the cool of the day and that sort of thing. But then the serpent comes. Human, uh, humanity disobeys the command that God gave about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're exiled from the garden. Now, we might be tempted to think at this point that that's a wrap on God's plan to co-create with humanity. They squandered the blessing that they were given in Genesis 1.28. They committed this egregious blunder that made God scrap his plan A, and now all that there is left to do is for us to try our best not to sin, to wait until we die, and maybe we'll go to heaven. It's really tempting to think that all is lost. But luckily, God is not a plan B type of God. There is no a plan other than plan A. And what we see play out in Genesis is this beautiful and compelling repetition where time and time again, humanity is offered by God another chance at this covenantal co-creating partnership that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. There's a friendship with Yahweh being uh, being extended to us, and even after we mess up again and again. So remember that this, this blessing in Genesis 1.28 that included words such as be fruitful and multiply and all that sort of thing. And so we go to Noah, Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and that says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The respect and fear of you will be, the, be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and the fish of the sea, etc., etc., it sounds really familiar, right? All of that language sounds like an echo of Genesis 1. And it should sound familiar. The Bible is brilliant, brilliantly written, and one of these literary techniques that we continue to see using is, is referencing. And by using these same words in reference uh, and, and an echoing of Genesis 1.28, we know that these stories are connected. There's, there's dots that we're supposed to be putting together here. There's a bigger picture being formed by connecting these stories. And so we, in, in our everyday life, we use referencing all of the time. It's part of how we imbue things with meaning by referencing. Many of our commercials today will reference cultural products in our world, such as popular movies or music. And if I were just to, to come out and say words such as, no, I am your father, then you would be connecting some dots. I wouldn't just be saying something random. You'd see it as a reference to a whole bigger story that I'm tapping into with those words. You would automatically be bringing up the story of Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and this exchanged relationship of good and evil and all this sort of thing. You're, you're referencing an entire bigger picture. And it's so cool how the Bible does this again and again with this blessing that God is extending to humanity. Just take a look at Genesis 
chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We start with Abram now. The Lord said to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all of the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God starts this invitation to Abram, and then he adds on to it, and he shows that there's this other piece, this, this piece of the bigger picture that he's showing us. What is this relationship between God and, and the people that he's inviting? What is, is it all supposed to be about? And our partnership with God is supposed to bring blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. We're supposed to be a blessing to all of the people of the earth. That's what our relationship with God is supposed to bring forth within us. And so again, to Abram in Genesis 13, verses 15 through 16, God says, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. And do you hear the theme echoes there? The theme echoes of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Again in Genesis 15, verse 5, that blessing is repeated with Abram. And then again in 17, verse 5 and 6. And God blesses Isaac later in Genesis 26. And then Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28. And then again in 35, all repeating the same language again and again down the generations. God is reiterating this invitation, this, this blessing, an invitation into this partnership. And what's even more beautiful is that God is inviting people that we might not expect him to invite, like Hagar and Ishmael. They're blessed in Genesis 16 and in 21. Hagar is this Egyptian slave who is abused and mistreated by Abraham and Sarah. And she's the first person in the Bible who gives God a title, El Roi, the God who sees me. And she and Ishmael, they're invited in the same way. The whole way down the line, God is reinviting humanity back to Eden and the mission of co-creation. That's the theme here. They're supposed to be a blessing to the world, being present with God in all that they do and all that they create. This is God's plan A, and it's still the plan. Throughout all of Genesis, these patriarchs are getting invited back to this proverbial Edenic ideal. And the readers, we're, we're sitting here on the edges of our seat with each one of the patriarchs asking, like, is, is this person going to be the one? Are they going to restore things? Is, is it Noah? Is it Abraham? Is this the anointed one who can right the wrongs? Is this the one that can fulfill the blessing? And each time we watch as Noah and then Abram and then Isaac and then Jacob, they all fall short. Genesis is repeating this blessing as a refrain again and again we're connecting the dots through the generations to different people groups. God's inviting this closer walk with God and to partake in this blessing. That is, that's being able to partner with God in this mission of making the whole world a place where God dwells with humanity. We steward and we co-create together, building beautiful and meaningful things. Now, I gave you just the tiniest overview of how this theme jumps out just in Genesis. If you don't believe me that this theme goes the whole way through the Bible, then just skip ahead to the end to Revelation 21 and 22. After sin is no longer part of this world, there is still co-creation happening. There's still a purpose. There's still a mission. We are still at work with our God. A city, which is the symbol of human civilization, and a garden, the symbol of God's natural creation. They're intertwined in this garden city in Revelation, this Edenic dwelling place for the God who dwells with us. But we're not there in the New Jerusalem in Revelation quite yet. 
In fact, I think we might share a lot of similarities with the patriarchs of Genesis. Again and again, God blessed them and invited them to be back into this creative relationship. And each time, we see that the patriarchs come close to reclaiming the Edenic ideal. But each time, we see them choosing the same path as Adam and Eve. They choose to do things on their own will and in their own way and lean on their own understanding instead of trusting God. So there's uh, an offer I'd like to make you of, of a way of interpreting this for your consideration. I think that the, the patriarchs, Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, I think they all ended up falling short because they were stuck. I think that they were stuck in their circumstances. They saw the world around them and they were, they were approached by God with this invitation to something that seemed too good to be true. It seemed so beautiful that they had no idea how it could ever be true. They saw what was in front of them and they couldn't see the possibilities. God is on the move and he's making the world into something increasingly beautiful and he's inviting us into it. God is taking the world that we have and making it into the world that God wants it to be, of compassion, of love, of, of peace. It's a new Eden of creativity. But the patriarchs were stuck in the world that we have. It's a world full of problems and challenges and limits. They couldn't see the possibilities and they couldn't trust that with God's help, these possibilities aren't just hypotheticals. They're actually blueprints. They're just waiting to be built. They were stuck in what they saw around them. And so after seeing failure after failure, us readers of the Bible, we wonder if there's any hope. Will we ever be able to, to be in that kind of relationship with God again, where we co-create and steward creation in a way that is, that is good and not abusive of creation? Will we ever be back in Eden? But then one day, along comes a carpenter, a Nazarene. His name was Jesus, a name which means Yahweh saves. And his title was Messiah, which means anointed one. And everything changed. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, this anointed one proclaims some really, really good news. The news that the kingdom of God has arrived. God is still king. God is still the ruler of the universe. Eden is still open for business. And God again extends that invitation to see the possibilities of the world around us, to see beauty in places that others can't because they have their eyes closed to this goodness of God, this culture of goodness that we want to build. But we know how the story ends in Revelation. We know that God's invitation is open to all of us right here and right now. And if there was one thing that I think I would change about what I see often in our Christian culture today, in our churches today, I think I would change how much hopelessness that I hear. I hear so often that the world is it's just not like it once was, and it's, it's all going downhill. It's just not, not like it used to be. Everything is about scarcity and this, this crippling fear over the state of the world that we live in, and the world is scary today. I'm not going to pretend like it's not. But we hear the words like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. But it's not. We've read the Bible. The world is going to the New Jerusalem. We know this. Can we see it? Can we imagine the possibilities that God is inviting us into?
I want to thank Ben for his setting of the theological backdrop on this topic of creativity. Our calling to be image bearers in this specific way, as creatives and as culture makers and as co-creators, is imperative for us to understand because our understanding of and our relationship with God grows as we turn these understandings into actions in our lives and in our church. I also want to thank Janet for her sermon last week about goodness and specifically actually about the culture of goodness and how we all have a part to play in building this culture of goodness. Listening to Ben this morning actually reminded me of a quote by Marshall Goldsmith. And his quote says, we know that what got us here won't get us there. I wonder if we believe that. I wonder if with, through all of our hard work and our labor building up to any point in our life, if we take a look at that and we say, ah, well, you know, that should continue working as we move forward. But we can also take a step back and, and see all the complexity and all the challenges and all the needs in our world. And they're not the same needs that existed even 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. And so it begs the question, how do we respond? Uh, what do we do with this? I do believe that what got us here won't get us there. And that requires us to tap into our callings as co-laborers, as co-creators, as creatives. For the second part of today's sermon, I'll be focusing on what it means for us as Christians to apply our creativity to our culture, to our communities, and to each of our lives. But for us to really talk about this, I want us to understand a few important things about creativity. First is actually that the word creativity itself uh, can be somewhat confusing. When you hear the word creativity, you might actually go to musicians or artists or po um, poetry. You might go and think about something very colorful. But actually, that's a, that is true. Those are creative uh, pursuits and creative individuals. But, but creativity is also in the way that parents care for a child when they're going through a heartbreak and we don't know how to respond. Creativity is when the lawyer is presented with an, a seemingly impossible case and then comes up with the breakthrough uh, realization of what's going to, uh, to solve that problem for them. Creativity is the, in the language, in the sentences that we form every single day. It's in, uh, it's in the way that we show appreciation for someone. Creativity is all around us, not just the arts. Second is really that at the heart of creativity uh, is really this thing called problem solving. Uh, now, the word problem doesn't necessarily sit well with everyone, but we can also look at it from the perspective of new opportunities or overcoming challenges. But we're problem solvers, all of us. We are designed for this. And by living into this, we are simultaneously living into our calling of culture makers. And then finally, there's actually two words that are uh, used to define the word creativity. Ben used it before, but, and you may have caught it. Uh, but those words are novel and useful. For an idea to be creative, it needs to be both novel and useful. That will help us set the tone and, and understand as we move forward. I actually think it's really helpful for us to start looking at biblical examples of creativity. You know, when, uh, when, when God sends, sends people into the battle with their hands up, 
in an unexpected way. It's a novel, it's a new and useful, it's a creative act. Jesus uh, living and walking with his disciples was unheard of uh, in that, as, as the Savior that was sent, the Messiah. Jesus turning uh, water into wine was creative. It was unexpected. How Jesus taught uh, through parables, um, not necessarily giving the direct answer, but allowing us to ask questions, is not a way that we would uh, expect uh, the, the God of the universe to come down and share with us the truth and the life that is offered through him. And the main example that I think about whenever I think about creativity in the Bible is the act of the incarnation. Uh, the, the, the fact that God sent his son to come and live and dwell among us, to walk with us, to get to know us, and then to die for us and solve the problem of sin for us is, in fact, a creative uh, endeavor, a creative response. And as we consider how creativity was lived out in Scripture, we also need to ask the question, so what does this mean for my walk with Christ? Now today I'm going to present three primary barriers that stand in our way to living into our roles as creators and provide a couple of potential solutions that will help us overcome these barriers. The first barrier that I want to talk about is actually that many of us don't believe that we're creative. Uh, and this can be for a lot of reasons. Uh, if we think of creativity pertaining primarily to the arts and we're not an artist, it's natural to come to this conclusion, right? So if I don't go home after school or work, take out my easel, pull out my Bob uh, Ross VHS and start painting a landscape, uh, I might not think I'm creative. Now, if you do that, I'm sure you're creative. That's great. But, but if we uh, only think of creatives in that realm uh, the, and, and we are not that, then we might not think we are. But another reason we may not think we're creative is simply that we haven't worked out our creative muscle as much as we ought to. Just like doing uh, physical exercise, our creativity can weaken over time, actually. And so there's this, uh, this study. It was a landmark study done. Uh, and his name, uh, the guy that did this study in 1968, his name is George Land. And he did this with Beth Jarman uh, uh, by his side. And they conducted a research study uh, with 1,600 children, ranging the age, ages of three to five. And this is actually the same creativity test that they devised for NASA to help select innovative engineers for, and scientists. And what they found was 98% of five-year-olds tested as creative geniuses. They then did the test uh, with that same group as 10-year-olds, and they found that that percentage was 30%. Then they did that with the same group at 15 years old, and they found that it was 12%. They eventually gave the test to 280,000 adults. You want to guess how many or what the percentage is? Only 2% of adults tested as creative geniuses. It went from 98% to 2%. In their book, Breakpoint and Beyond, uh, he says, non-creative behavior 
is learned. Our proficiency in expressing our creativity gradually drops off as we learn to accept others' opinions, evaluations, and beliefs. What we have seen from our work from adults is that the five-year-old creative genius is still lurking inside, waiting to break free. Did you hear it? What we have seen from our work from adults is that the five-year-old creative genius is still lurking inside, waiting to break free. Now, there's been much more study on this topic since 1968, and they found that this is right. They found that this creativity thing is actually something we can work out and something that we can teach. And uh, there's a lot of different exercises, there's a lot of different ways that we can do it, but I actually wanna invite us to do one of those exercises today. So, get ready to type into chat, and what I want us to do is I don't want you to tell me what this is, but I want you to tell me what this is not. So, this is, for example, this is not a coffee mug. This is an encouragement giver. This is not a coffee mug. Uh, this is a pedestal. This is not a coffee mug. It's a tuning device. What is this? Not, it's not a coffee mug. It is a... This is actually something, keep on going, keep on, keep on type into the chat. And I challenge you to come up with as many as you can. And if you go to the end of, of the message, uh, go for it. <laughs> uh, but this is actually something called a divergent thinking exercise. And as I said about the muscle, how this is a muscle, this is actually one of the ways that we can work out our muscle and become better at figuring out how to increase our cre creative potential. This belief of us not being creative is also something that's problematic in the sense that when we stop believing uh, that we are made in this image of God, that, that we are called into this work, we inherently are going to be shying away from what that means in our lives. So, will you please start thinking of yourself as creative and perhaps even uh, figure out ways to exercise that creative muscle? The second barrier that I'd like to talk about today is actually risk. When I first learned about the connection between creativity and risk, I was a bit surprised, to be honest. I always thought a creative, a creative individual was just free and, uh, and throws caution, caution to the wind and just kind of sends it, you know? <laughs> and this is true. But what's also true is that creative people and communities that embrace creativity have found a way to take appropriate risk and found a way to celebrate when other people in that community are taking those risks. Now, I want us to actually do a little bit of an exercise. So, so uh, if you're still typing about the, uh, the coffee mug or the not coffee mug, um, that's okay. But I'm going to ask you to do another exercise. And so, um, what I'd like for us to do is say a phrase with me, but we're going to say it twice. Now, the first time, I want you to say it a certain way. And how you say it is really uh, the most important part. So, I want you to cross your arms, and what I want you to say is, we've never done it that way, but you have to be grumpy when you say it. All right? So, one, two, three. We've never done it that way. And I'll give you a little, you know, you can curl your nose up if you want to at the end. All right. Good job. Now, uh, I want us to say it again the second time, but this time, I want to say it like this. 
we've never done it that way. All right, but there has to be like, you know, this little little thing you do at the, at the end there where it's like more positive, right? So one, two, three. We've never done it that way. Now, how'd it feel? That first way to the second way. It's important. And oftentimes in churches, uh, we might find ourselves uh, in the first category rather than the second category. And in the culture that, that exists inside of a place, uh, the culture that exists um, inside of First Church will, will help determine whether we suppress and push away creative um, ideas or try new things, or whether we're going to nurture and cultivate really our creative callings. You know, there are three types of, uh, of risk, or I should say three primary types of risk associated with creativity. And those three things are time, social, and financial. So really time is, well, hey, we, we only have a limited amount of time, only so many hours in the day, and for me to invest in this direction is going to be a sacrifice of my time. The second is a, a social risk, and that's, well, if I say this, am I going to look silly? If I do this, are people going to think I'm weird, right? That's a social risk. If you do something that might be novel and useful, right? And then the third is a financial risk because sometimes we need to put our finances towards it, right? Now, I just want to be clear. Uh, being creative is much more about intentionality uh, and focus than it is about finances. But um, sometimes finances need to become part of that conversation. And I, I really like looking at the example of Bezalel in Exodus. And we can, all, we can see all three of these examples being overcome Though in this. Uh, in this. It's uh, Exodus chapter 31. The Lord speaks to Moses, appointing Bezalel, who's a, craft, a craftsman of all kinds, and places him in charge of creating the Ark of the Covenant, which is the most sacred art, uh, relic of the Israelites. And what I love when I read this uh, part of Scripture um, is the attention and the intention and the focus and the time that had to be invested inside of this to create something that was that special and that meaningful and that much of a connection between God and His people, right? It's, it's mind-blowing to think about this, uh, but oftentimes we find ourselves, well, hey, to do something creative it's going to take us to overcome these risks. And, and the question then becomes, are we willing to really do that? Now, I do want to talk a little bit more about social risk, because social risk really is tricky. And we live in a time where social media <laughs> exists, a time where we can, it feels like every move and action, step, misstep, word, misword, can be recorded or posted for the entire world to see. A time when the very way that we process information is shifting for better or for worse. And while there's many upsides uh, to our current reality, um, there's also uh, things that we need to be aware of. You know, anxiety and depression are at all-time highs throughout the world right now, with some research pointing to things like social media as being one of the drivers behind that. There's unhealthy comparison that this creates. And you may have heard the phrase, um, comparison is the thief of joy, right? But unhealthy comparison with other people and other places starts to steal our ability to be fully present right now 
and really invest um, in what's in front of us. And over time, what this does is that this little voice starts creeping into our lives, telling us we're not good enough, what we're doing's not good enough, that we, what we have to offer might not be um, valuable, that we're not valuable, leaving us in a place that God desperately does not want us to live into. And, you know, while we were doing that exercise before, you may have heard this little voice say something. That's not a good idea. Don't type that into chat. Don't say that. No, that'd be silly. If you say that, that's weird. I would encourage you to, to push past that voice and just, you know, put it out there. And I should say that that voice, that filter, can be helpful for uh, having us not say certain things like, well, all right, well, that's, that is weird, you know. But it can also be unhelpful when it shuts down all of our ideas and starts to challenge the very freedom that God has given to us and invited us into. Overcoming social risk can be difficult, but we can also create a culture where safety and vulnerability are normal. And this is paramount, and I want you to hear it, paramount for any person and any group to experience the creativity and uh, the restoration and redemption that God has, has invited us. I want to finish this section just by lifting up a quote by Brene Brown. Um, and Brene Brown, uh, she says, Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity. It is the source of hope, empathy, accountability, and authenticity. If we want greater clarity in our purpose or deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. I would just add to that uh, by saying that when we are not willing to take these social risks, it can be for a lot of different reasons. And perhaps it's because uh, we've been shut down um, and we may be shutting ourselves down. In order for us to do that, I invite you to go to God in prayer and to invite others and be vulnerable and open up in order to experience all that God has invited us into. The final barrier that I want to talk about is basically our willingness. To be culture makers, to be problem solvers, to be risk takers, this can be a very daunting task. But there's work to be done. We know that what got us here won't get us there. There's an invitation that is not even fully comprehensible, but true an invitation to participate in the restoration of all things. There's beauty to discover, goodness to taste and to see, wounds to be healed and joy to be found. As Isaiah says, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. And in Proverbs it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And the psalmist says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Going back to Ben's words, there's an echo, an invitation back to Eden, a mission before us, and a vision and promise of restoration. The question is, what will we do 
with this invitation as believers in Christ? Will we accept this invitation into co-creation to be co-laborers, to see heaven be experienced here on earth, and to solve the complex problems and meet the needs that are right in front of us, knowing that God goes before us and is with us. Amen. To close today, I want to invite Ben to join us uh, for our final benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you. And give you peace. Amen. Amen.